Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking with Kristen Cobis Dumay, a New York Times bestselling author and professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. Her most recent book is Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. Such a good title. How did a man who lacks even the most basic knowledge of the Christian faith win more than 80% of white evangelical votes in 2016 and 2020 after they had seen him operate? And why have white evangelicals become Donald Trump's staunchest supporters? So much to talk about here. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. So let me start with, um, given all you deal with this book and what you're dealing with every day, how's your spirit these days? Oh, it's a bit rough, I have to say. We're, we're talking here just less than 24 hours after news broke of the uh, sexual harassment that was rampant at Christianity Today for a couple of decades. And so I am in the thick of talking with a lot of women who were part of that story or women who are sharing their own stories that are quite similar. And and so it's it's rough. Honestly, I feel a lot of anger right now. This happens over and over and over again. And I guess we just shouldn't be surprised when it breaks out one more time and affects so many women's lives. Not not surprising and yet still shocking. Yes, it should be shocking and probably less surprising to us all. Well, you opened this amazing book by setting the scene for a speech Donald Trump made in Iowa in 2016. During this speech, as you write, he denigrated American politicians as weak and pathetic and urged evangelical Christians to assert their cultural power. He also famously said in that speech that his supporters were so loyal that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and wouldn't lose any voters. This was a speech where he said that famous line. You know the setting for that speech well. It took place at Dork College, your alma mater, where your father taught theology. And as you watch the crowd in your hometown cheer for Trump that day, I have to ask you what went through your mind. Yeah, I was watching the live stream. And first, it's, it's not unusual. Uh, Dort is in Iowa, and I'm Iowa is the first caucus. And so we always get a lot of political candidates in more recent years, usually just Republicans come through. And so there was nothing that unusual. But when I heard the speech, and I believe this was the first time that Robert Jeffress accompanied Trump. And so he opened with prayer. And I remember thinking at first, uh, these, these guys got it wrong. They don't know where they are. They're playing to a conservative, evangelical crowd, but that's not who Dort is, and they don't know what they're doing. And so there's this real disconnect, and it was shocking, absolutely shocking what you know, the words of the of the talk. Up until that point, I had only heard little sound bites of Trump's speeches, and, and I thought, you know, oh, the media is probably pulling out the most shocking 
shocking passages. And I'm sure in context, it's, you know, it, it might not be so bad. It was actually the opposite. Sitting down and listening to an entire speech was so much worse than the sound bites because you just, you saw like the full picture and what, what we were dealing with. And so the whole event was alarming. And I just had this disconnect of surely these people here in this space, they're not going for this, are they? <laughs> and yet, you know, as I say in the book, a few months later in the election, well, more than 81% of Sioux County evangelicals ended up voting for Donald Trump or Sioux County residents, I should even say. They're not going for this, surely. (laughs) Would have have been my response too, uh, knowing a little bit about Dork College and the Reformed Christian theology there. And Robert Jeffers, of course, you mentioned, pastor of First Baptist in Dallas, which he boasts has 14,000 members and one of Trump's most outspoken supporters and chaplains. So I guess, did you know early on that Trump would appeal to white evangelicals like this? It sounds like it was surprising at first that he would appeal to these people. Yeah, I did not have a crystal ball. I can't say that I I saw this coming, you know, before anybody else did. But I was watching really closely. And, you know, right in, in January of 2016, that's when the speech was, that's when you started to see the first kind of evangelical leaders start to officially back Trump. So both Jeffress and Jerry Falwell. Jr. at that time. And, you know, that wasn't uh, too shocking to me. But early on in and during the primary season, I think there was a lot of uncertainty, not just in terms of what white evangelical voters would do, but there were some very real questions about who Trump was and, uh, you know, what he had recently been a Democrat. What were his views on abortion and pro-life? And so there was just a lot of questions. But what I saw happening over the ensuing months was the more Trump made himself known, and that wasn't just in terms of his views on abortion, but the more he made himself known on the debate stage in terms of his crudeness, his crassness, his really alarming rhetoric, anti-immigrant, racist uh, rhetoric, the more he made himself known, the more we saw evangelicals fall in line. And it didn't actually start with the national leaders. It started at the grassroots. So I was watching this. I can't say I expected it. But by the time you know the fall of 2016 rolled around, and particularly the Access Hollywood tape, when that released, and, and we had this moment that everybody kind of stopped, and the question was, what will evangelicals do now? When we saw just a couple ever so briefly waver, but everybody else, you know, 100% staying with Trump, that's when it clicked for me, honestly. That's when I thought we have seen this before. More than 15 years ago, I'd started some research on evangelical masculinity and militarism. I'd set it aside, and I watched then in the next decade, many of the men that I had been examining at that time who were promoting this very militaristic conception of quote-unquote Christian manhood had become implicated in sexual abuse scandals or abuse of power. And so I had notes on this. I'd watch this, and all of a sudden it clicked, and I thought, we have seen this before, and I think I know how this turns out. And so it's at that point that this really crystallized for me. Well, your book shows how that really did click historically. A number of pundits and Christian leaders have argued that white evangelicals voted for Trump for a number of reasons. They didn't like Hillary Clinton. They wanted to see conservative justices on the Supreme Court, the Faustian bargain, a transactional kind of political trade-off here, that it was to deal with the devil in a way. But you argue that's really not true. Uh, It's 
that white evangelicals voted for Trump, not despite their beliefs, but because of them. What do you mean by that? I mean, first on just on policy, on the level of policy, uh, we can we can look at somebody like Wayne Grudem, who is an evangelical kind of systematic theologian, but he also published a essentially a, a systematic book on politics, the Christian view on everything, and on virtually every issue from immigration and border patrol and law enforcement and foreign policy and gender and sexuality and and pretty much everything, the overlap with the Trump agenda is extremely tight. So there there are policy issues that go beyond just a a very small number. But more than that, I think that, you know, the, the crux of this, this seeming paradox was how could family values voters vote for somebody like Donald Trump, right? This is the moral majority. And, and what I realized is if we look to the history, we can see how family values politics really boiled down to the assertion of white patriarchal authority. And if you keep that at the center, then it's not an aberration. There's there's no disconnect here. You can see that Trump coming on stage at this crisis moment, and, and it's always a crisis moment, by the way, but at this particular crisis moment for evangelicals, he was the ultimate fighting champion. He was going to restore Christian America. He was going to do what needed to be done. And so he really fits very nicely within this narrative. And he's kind of the hero who can lead the charge. I find it interesting in the way you say how you were already doing research on masculinity and militarism, already those two deeply connected subjects for research. And then he bursts on the scene and all of your research that you've been doing already all of a sudden makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So I had started back in the, in around 2005, 2006, when I first arrived at Calvin as a new professor, I was teaching a class in U.S. history. And I lectured one day on Teddy Roosevelt because I wanted to show my students how gender worked in history. And Roosevelt's a great example that it's not just in, in Christian spaces, especially when we think about gender, we might think, can women serve as pastors and elders and deacons? Or is this, you know, this complementarian versus egalitarian? and the questions of authority. But as a historian, I knew that gender is linked to economic shifts and it's linked to things like foreign policy. And and Roosevelt is just this beautiful example. And so I lectured on Roosevelt and showed how ideas of masculinity were shifting. And after class, a couple of guys came up to me and said, Professor Dumay, there is a book that you have got to read. And they pointed me to John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Everybody who knew an evangelical (laughs) at that time has heard of that book. Uh, It was everywhere. It went on to sell more than 4 million copies. And my own church was hosting book groups. All the guys in the dorms were. It was everywhere. And so I listened to them. I went down to Family Christian Bookstore, bought myself a copy for $20, and opened it up. And there, right on the front page, is a, a quote from Teddy Roosevelt. And Eldridge goes on to sketch this very militant, militaristic conception of Christian manhood. God is a warrior God, and every man is made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. Now, this was in 2005, 2006, the early years of the Iraq War. And so I was seeing all this survey data come in about how white evangelicals were outliers in terms of support for the Iraq War, support for preemptive war, condoning the use of torture. And I just asked the question that I was trained to ask as a historian of gender, like, what might one of these things have to do with the other? So I did a year and a half of research back then. And then I set it aside. Uh, I was working on another book, had other stuff going on, but I was also really troubled by this question of what I was reading 
looked very extremist, to be honest. (laughs) And I wasn't sure how mainstream it was and how to tease that out. And if it was fringe, because it felt fringe, despite the book sales. And, you know, this was the height of Mark Driscoll and stuff too. It was coming at me from all all sides. I, I just didn't know how to tease out. And as a Christian, I particularly wondered, um, you know, should I be shining this bright light on what may be the darkest underbelly of American Christianity if it is a fringe movement? All those things, I just kind of set it aside. And in the fall of 2016, I dusted off that old research and I thought, uh, I need to do this. Well, indeed, I've often said that Trump is not the cause of our problems, but he became the consequence and culmination of what was already there. And you, so your research all of a sudden came to life in his words For me, the the parallel there was, I actually predicted Trump would win the presidency, and my Sojourner's team thought I was crazy, but I did, because when he came down the elevator and attacked immigrants the way he did, I just knew that he appealed to the worst demons, and for me, it was the whiteness of white evangelical. That demon is there, and he appealed to that right away, and I knew he'd win the Republican nomination. And if the election was close, which they often are, he could win the election because he was appealing to the worst in us. And what you did with masculine militarism is so powerful because it was there, as your research had shown, he just directly appealed to those demons. And and the whiteness is really important. You know, when I started this book, I thought I was writing a book on masculinity. And very quickly, I realized I was also writing a book on race. And so it it is white evangelicals and it is white masculinity. And that was clear in the, the book. I was reading early on in my research that all of the heroes that they were holding up were white men. And in many cases, you know, like John Wayne in the title, uh, white men who kind of proved their heroic, rugged masculinity through violence and violence often over non-white populations on screen and off. Now, January 6th, we saw a mob, many of whom identified as Christians and even evangelicals, invade the Capitol in an attempt to overturn the 2020 election. The first thing they did when they took over the congressional gallery there was they say said a prayer. They shout out Jesus' name with their guns and their swords and nooses in hand. Yeah, there was the floor, uh, the the prayer on the floor of the Senate. There's another prayer that was offered that day when I was watching videos, and that was of a group of proud boys as they were advancing towards the Capitol. And you can just make out the words of that prayer. And what struck me when I heard that was how it was a prayer that really could have been said in pretty much any evangelical church on any given Sunday. Just the the cadences, the words, it was so familiar to me. So one of the things that I show in the book is how by really centering this patriarchy and this rugged masculinity, this militarism, this white patriarchy, I should say, and moving that to the core of their cultural and religious identity in the 1960s and 1970s, as evangelicals did, that creates bonds across theological difference. And so you see conservative evangelicals, conservative white evangelicals having more in common with secular conservatives. This is the John Wayne sort of thing. John Wayne wasn't an evangelical, but around these ideals of masculinity and of American power. Whereas then, you know, connections with even fellow evangelicals who might hold to much of the same theology, you know, people like yourself, but don't hold to these particular social and political political values, right? That's where the divide is. Romans 12, uh, be not conformed to the world, or as Philip says, don't 
let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, which it says is your acceptable worship. So cultural conformity becomes the issue, not even evangelical theology. It's cultural conformity. For evangelicals, it can be really difficult for evangelicals to identify their own cultural influences. Uh, They've embrace this notion that they have access to God's truth. And so all of the values that they hold are branded as biblical or Christian. And so they've remained oblivious to, shockingly oblivious to, the ways in which their own conceptions of what is biblical have been shaped by their historical and cultural context. So, I mean, that's that's very much the conversations I'm having with some of these conservative evangelical leaders today. They still seem unable to disentangle their particular views on any number of issues with God's truth. For them, it is one and the same. Well, that's why that text is so important. Don't be conformed to the world, the culture, but be transformed, which is part of our worshiping God. So that tension, that countercultural attitude is not often there. And your book traces the history of white evangelicalism during the last hundred years or so, in which it, you say, trades a faith that privileges humility and elevates the least of these for one that derides gentleness in the province of wusses. Rather than turning the other cheek, they resolve to defend their faith and their nation, secure the knowledge that the ends justify the means. Yeah, I, I could talk about the subtitle, I, I suppose, which is how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. And there's there's two parts to that, because I, I think that this story matters an awful lot, whether you care about evangelicals or not. And that's the fractured the nation part. I think that the story is, is critically important for understanding the current political landscape in this country and, frankly, the fate of democracy, the rise of right-wing populism and authoritarianism. So I'll just put that out there. But the first part of the subtitle, Corrupted a Faith, these quote-unquote Bible-believing Christians, right? I wanted to just show them how, again, these ideas that they had embraced and packaged and sold as biblical. In fact, I just wanted to say, go back to your scriptures. <laughs> go back. Take another look. Take another look at the Jesus of the Gospels. Take another look at love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, love your enemies. Turn the other cheek. The fruits of the Spirit. The Beatitudes. Right? Take another look. You know, Welcome the foreigner. All of this. Because what you're saying is you know, evangelicals self-identify first and foremost as Bible-believing Christians. But there are so many parts of the scriptures that they neglect or explicitly renounce. Well, you said there's a line in the book that I just underline all over the place. It said, we see this in white evangelicals, support for preemptive war, the use of torture, and the death penalty. No, no, Jesus wouldn't be for a preemptive war, the use of torture, and the death penalty. Even people that aren't Christians would know enough about Jesus. No, no, that wouldn't be true. And so you say white evangelicals are more likely to own guns and are opposed to accepting refugees. Well, this is not what the Bible says. Exactly. As you say, they claim to be Bible-believing, but if it isn't the Bible, then you're showing what are the sources that white evangelicals are drawing their arguments and beliefs from that aren't the Bible, but they think they're biblical. So how does that go? I mean, you've been doing that. now for a while. How, how do you get people to take another look at the scriptures? They say they're Bible-believing, but what they believe isn't in the Bible. Yeah, it's hard to break through, partly because 
we all have have filters and lenses through which we read the scriptures. All of us do. But also, this the subculture is really important to acknowledge. And I, in evangelicals, a lot of them read the scriptures. Not all of them do. But that's not the only kind of input <laughs> that they're receiving. They're also probably listening to Christian radio. Some of them hours a day, Christian talk radio in their churches are maybe their pastors attending the Desiring God conferences and reading the Gospel Coalition, and they're shopping at Christian bookstores or you know, buying products from, from Christian publishers. So there's all these sources of information that give them these filters. So this is how you interpret the scriptures. These are the Bible passages that we're going to be focusing on, and these are the ones that are just never going to come up. And so it is I mean, one of the things that my book does is it doesn't say theology isn't important because theology comes back around, but it is not necessarily, in many cases, not at all, the kind of defining feature. It's the cultural allegiances that come first, and then theology is kind of uh, brought alongside to justify the verses are plucked out that are, are appropriate. And so I really do say that we need to see evangelicalism not primarily as as a theology, but as a cultural movement, and in many cases, as a consumer culture. Joel Hunter, who I love, was one of the biggest big mega church pastors who started that. But he used to say to me, I got my people for two hours a week if I'm lucky. Fox News has them 24-7, and I can't compete. That's true. And you know that we have the survey data that evangelicals themselves conduct these studies, and they show high levels of theological illiteracy among white evangelicals. And in fact, uh, you know, alarming numbers of evangelicals, alarming to evangelical pastors, hold I- ideas that would be categorized as heresy. And, and frankly, there's you know, my own experience has given me eyes to see this. When I would go to a, an evangelical church or to a women's Bible study and realize just how little of the Bible there was in these things, certainly theology absent. So what is evangelicalism to people if they are so theologically illiterate or if, you know, there's so much more? And I think here, too, African-American Christians can help us see this really clearly, because if you just look at theology— the majority of Black Protestants would check all of those evangelical boxes. And in fact, some evangelicals want to claim them as, see, they're evangelicals too. The truth is the vast majority of Black Christians who can check all those boxes do not identify as evangelical because it's so clear to them that there is a whole lot more to evangelicalism than scriptural beliefs. Well, evangelicals become a white brand for black pastors. Exactly. It's a white religious brand. But their theology is as biblical, Jesus-centered. In fact, when I got kicked out of my little church, white church in Detroit, I got taken in by these black churches. There were black Plymouth Brethren churches. They took me in and they had answers to all my questions. They had thought these things through. The book is so clear in how Evangelical Christians went from believing in Jesus, the Prince of Peace, to idolizing John Wayne, who I never liked as an actor. And you mentioned how Billy Graham was a key figure in all this. You do a lot of analysis of Billy's career through the book. Say say a little bit about him. Yeah, it was important to me to include a picture of the young Billy Graham in this book. And I love the picture that I found. It's actually from a photo studio here in Grand Rapids. But he was dashing. He was handsome. And every newspaper article that, that covered him for a couple 
couple of decades, at least, you'd like to talk about his rugged masculine appearance, his square jaw, his piercing eyes. And that was important because for people of my generation and certainly younger and, and somewhat older too, our picture of Billy Graham is as an older man who had really softened, who was more moderate, who was chastened in some ways post Watergate. And, and so there's this tendency to think things have gone wrong more recently. And again, this idea that there's a betrayal of evangelicalism at play. And to a certain extent, that makes sense. But you need to understand that there are deep roots here and that Billy Graham was part of this story. His Christian nationalism, his ardent militarism, his ambition, right, his political ambition, all of that, and his you know, quote-unquote gender traditionalism, all of this really did set the stage. And on the one hand, yes, he distanced himself some from the really curmudgeonly fundamentalists, and they didn't like him because he was too ecumenical. But I think that historians and evangelicals themselves have overstated the separation between the Billy Graham neo-evangelicals and the more right-wing fundamentalists. I think that was never a complete separation. And it, certainly today we see that there are a lot of overlaps there. Well, and one can provide the cover for the other. Exactly. I love, I love this line, Jesus will save your soul and John Wayne will save your ass. So the question is, why did white evangelicals think their ass needed to be saved? <laughs> and they're not a persecuted minority by any stretch of the imagination, yet that narrative has such strong hold on the white evangelical culture. What's behind that? Oh, yeah. You know, this this uh, kind of persecution complex and uh, – and this came into focus very clearly for me when I was writing the chapter on the fake ex-Muslim terrorists, which is a very strange chapter in the book. And and this was post 9-11. And I first learned of these guys because one of them came to Calvin. And so it, these are these guys who claim to have been jihadists who were radical Muslim terrorists. And then each of them had some sort of conversion experience where they converted to evangelicalism. And so so they were on the speaking circuit, again, post 9-11, sponsored by organizations like Focus on the Family, Christian Broadcasting Network, and so on, and speaking to white evangelical audiences about how Muslims wanted to kill them and their families. And uh, and what I realized, thanks to my historian colleague, uh, Doug Howard, who happens to be an expert on Islamic history, he, he picked up immediately hearing one of these guys speak at Calvin that this guy's making this up. He's a, this makes no sense. Uh, he's a fraud. And so he contacted Focus on the Family. And lo and behold, they knew he was a fraud, but they kept parading him out. And that's when it, it clicked for me that the, the whole theory of time and again, whatever the crisis is, and, and certainly we heard this narrative in 2016 and in, under the Obama uh, years as well, that white evangelicals are kind of pushed to sometimes radical um, politics or, or drastic choices because they are so afraid. And what choice do they have, right? You've got demographic decline. You've got the kind of religious liberty. There's always, there's always a reason or many. And, and so that's how we can understand this militancy. What I realized from the story of these ex-Muslim terrorists, all frauds, laughably so, was that uh, I think we need to often switch what comes first in that equation, that it's the militancy that comes first, and it requires the continual stoking of fear. And so you can see that in Jerry Falwell Sr.'s 
uh, church, Thomas Road Baptist. You saw that in Mark Driscoll's Mars Hill Church, that you need to continually uh, manufacture fear in the hearts of your followers. We are at war. And if you're at war, you can demand absolute loyalty and total sacrifice, which means you give financially, you give your time, and you do what I say. And so it's a beautiful way to consolidate power. And when I saw that in the case of these ex-Muslim terrorists, where the fear that was stoked was genuine, right? I, I remember evangelicals at that time and to today very, very afraid. I mean, James Dobson said the greatest threat to the American family is radical Islam because if they come and kill your kids, there you go, right? So, uh, you know, once I realized this, I kind of looked at this longer history with suspicion. And so often you could see that it was leaders who were actively stoking this fear in the hearts of their followers in order to consolidate their own power. And it worked marvelously well. You know, but this fear, this fear is really, it's fear about losing power. It's a, it's a white fear about losing power. It's a male fear about losing power. It's not about your faith is at stake. Your power is at stake or you feel it's at stake. The body of Christ, as you know, is the most diverse human community on the planet, but it doesn't look like the American church. Uh, these strong men, your book is so good on analyzing the weakness behind all these strong men. I have a, a little bit of a hope, a little prayer, that as the religious right is rising and falling with Donald Trump, will this have any impact, do you think, on undermining strong men, even here at home with the churches and their strong men? What do you think? Ah, oh, I don't know. And I will say that, you know, I write a little bit about evangelicals love for Putin, certain evangelicals love for Putin at the end of Jesus and John Wayne. And I do see, I think it's unpopular in many circles to be blatantly pro-Putin right now. And so it's kind of hard to gauge how much that's just underneath the surface. We see that in some conservative pundits. We see that on some you know, news channels, uh, this pro-Russia sentiment. I don't know how widespread it is right now, but I'm not too optimistic that because of what's going on in Ukraine, that the strongman ideal is just going to disappear. I, I don't see that happening. It's too deeply entrenched. And so you, to have somebody like Zelensky come in and, and offer a different model of courageous leadership seeking peace, I think is really critical. And we need to see more of that kind of discourse, frankly, in evangelical spaces as well. Thank you for a wonderful vision of the kind of faith that the young people and the young people that you teach all the time can believe in and can gather around. And this is what they need to hear from us if they're going to find their own way, way, way to face. So big thanks from me to you for this book and your voice. Thank you. Thank you. And this conversation has been an absolute delight. I'm really grateful. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of the nation. Thank you all.